in our closing minutes of this weekend, I'd just like to share some of the experiences to be a little bit more um, subjective in a sense from the um, objective word that we've been talking about in relation to holiness. Um, most of you have probably seen the, the um, artist's picture of Dirk Willems who was running across the ice. His pursuer fell through and he turned around and goes back to, to um, rescue his pursuer. You know, the beauty of holiness just confounds the ugliness of revenge and hate and anger and the lack of forgiveness. And in some of the most dynamic ways that happens in relation to our enemies. And, and uh, Dirk Willem's rescue of his pursuer still captures humanity's attention centuries after that incident because of the beauty of forgiveness. And there's a, a rich beauty in the account of an early American Anabaptist whose neighbors despised Christians, lived in the east somewhere, I'm not exactly sure which location. This ungodly neighbor accused the, the Anabaptist of, by saying that his dog had killed numbers of his chickens. And though he demanded a very inflated price for the loss, the Anabaptist neighbor gave him extra beyond what he required. He went to second mile and gave extra um, for the damage that the dog had done to his, his chickens. And it was sometime later that the accusing neighbor discovered that his Anabaptist neighbor never owned a dog. You see the beauty, the beauty of forgiveness the beauty of a gentle response just illustrates the beauty of God's holiness. And it goes without saying that the beauty of the preceding scenarios um, are not without their lapses within our Anabaptist circles. On the other hand, wherever there is holiness, these beautiful expressions abound and they come out. And in some cases, they abounded so prolifically that they have seemed almost normal maybe and are mistakenly seen as a characteristic of the subculture when it's really the work of Christ through the generations that has caused that to, to be true. And yet the, the loss of the beauty of holiness brings a mystical sadness about the, the good old days even to those who are unconverted. It's essential that we become aware that the Beauty of holiness is dramatically captivating. Um, all true holiness issues from the heart of a believer where Jesus has taken up residence, as we mentioned earlier today. And it's his beauty that we get to display. Uh, we're just a, a reflection, a mirror of his beauty. So we're a little more than a glass case that encloses the, the um, life of Jesus Christ within. And Paul emphasized that numerous times when he says, You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are the temple of the Spirit of God. And so the most profound glimpse that people, that most people in the world will ever get of the life of Jesus Christ is what they see in us. So the beauty of his life will continue to captivate the attention of apostate religious people as well as adherents of false religions across the world. 
They are to see in us a beauty that is found nowhere else. That beauty oozes out of your actions, your words, and the radiance of your life. The world may scorn it in public, but that beauty haunts them in the quiet hours of reflection. So even if they don't show it to you, it's there, and they will reflect on it. So I'd just like to, to finish in our last part of our session here, if we have time, maybe just a little bit more, by reflecting on some of the practical examples of the beauty of holiness that I've been privileged to observe while working in an Asian cross-cultural setting. The nonconformity that comes from these illustrations directly links to the beauty of Jesus that's seen in, in his people. The soul of Law, her name was Law, had been hardened and embittered by many men who have used her for their perverted delight. She knows no safe men. Her concept of a godly man is non-existent. Every male she's known well has been the source of pain, another source of pain and exploitation. Yet she began riding her Harley Davidson out to our church service, which was conducted in a language that she couldn't understand, only a few words here and there. And when she was asked, what is it that draws you to the Igo Christian Fellowship? Her answer was simple. She said, and I quote, I want to watch the fathers relate to their children. It was an expression of holiness that she'd never seen in her entire life. As an evangelical missionary that was living there in, in Chiang Mai, the wife was caring for a 15-year-old mother of, of a 2-year-old child. When she needed to return back here to the States to care for their uh, terminally ill genetic son, she began praying for a conservative Mennonite family to foster the, the twosome, the 15-year-old with her two-year-old child. Um, she felt, that she was praying that um, there would be a conservative Mennonite family to foster them when she returned to the States, but she felt that her prayer was kind of ridiculous because she'd never seen such a family in Asia, any place, and she had been exposed to some back here. Her own history had been one of tremendously painful abuse, and God just raised her up to reach out to those who had experienced similar things, and that's why she had this girl with her two-year-old daughter. So as she was preparing to go back, she just longed for that kind of a home for her foster daughters while she was gone. One day she was um, in a... A little restaurant not too far away from Igo, and um, one of the students from the school happened to providentially drop into that restaurant for a little time of um, solitude and quietness, and this lady said she could not believe it. She said when she looked in the doorway and saw this conservative Anabaptist girl coming through in this foreign country, she just thought this was a total miracle. 
that somebody like that would be over here in, in Chiang Mai. And so she, she got up and went over to meet with the girl to talk with her. And she told Teresa, she said, the Mennonites have a purity and character and innocence that would be so healing for my sexually abused foster daughter. You have something that is very precious. And as it turned out, that, um, that daughter and her daughter, or that 15-year-old and her daughter, uh, became a part of one of the families in our, our church for that year while they were gone. And um, that young lady is a vibrant Christian today, walking with the Lord. Just a, a blessing. Several young male students sat around a monk chat table at a local Buddhist temple with two other monks. And the one monk seemed fairly well informed about Christian doctrine, but he kind of emanated a rather haughty attitude uh, of superiority to these Christian inquirers. That was one of the ways that we would try to engage with the Buddhist people as the young men would go to the temples and most of the temples would have a chat table of some kind where the monks would explain to the visitors what Buddhists believe and what they're, they're involved in. And so our young men would go there. And this particular occasion, um, the one monk was, was kind of a haughty guy. And uh, as they discussed and as they talked, all of that haughtiness changed to one of significant respect and interest when they inadvertently discovered that their guests were all virgins. That's very strange in that culture. Most of the men who come, most of the men who live there are not faithful to their wives. And so for him to find out that these young men were virgins was just a shocking reality that he couldn't process. And all of a sudden, the haughtiness was respect. And we've had numbers of Buddhist monks that have attended our Anabaptist church services from time to time um, just due to their intrigue with a separate holy people. I think I told some of you, I don't remember if it was here, if it was another setting, I'll just quickly repeat. Um, as some of our students went to Nepal, a pastor came to the airport to pick them up at the Kathmandu airport, and he later reported that he was just astounded when he saw them exiting the airplane. Uh, he assumed that those must be the ones that are coming to serve me and my church, but he had never seen anybody from the West that looked modest and, and so forth, because the ones that come from the West were usually, um, uh, in fact, he had kind of had a negative attitude toward them. But he was delighted as he became aware that they were going to come and minister to his church. And he had previously hosted numerous different groups of American mission teams, but was always kind of disappointed and even disgusted with, with their, their lives and the way they acted. So as these young people came off the plane, um, he... Uh, uh, was just shocked 
because he had taken care of young people with spiked hair and cutoffs and loud music and immodesty and immorality and, and so forth. He felt compelled to entertain them because their churches were helping supply the finances for his program, but he just secretly grieved at their presence. But this group was so different. He said their enthusiasm, their availability, their industriousness caused him to, to comment that these were like angels that served him the whole, the whole week. And actually about 10 days. And so when they left and flew back to Chiang Mai, the impression was so deep that he bought a ticket on his own expenses to fly from Kathmandu to Chiang Mai so that he could live in the dorms and see if this beauty was real. Uh, who are these people? Where do they come from? He later organized a, um, what he called, we didn't necessarily like the, the title, but he organized an Anabaptist conference for all the pastors in Nepal to come be taught the doctrines as understood by the Anabaptists. Pastor Isaac from Myanmar has traveled to the Asian Bible School the past, um, well, it was about four years in a row, and he confessed to despising Americans because of how unprincipled and moral they were when they came to visit in his ministry. And as he observed the, um, the Asian Bible School staff and families, he commented that the classes were inspiring and enjoyable, but his primary reason for coming to, was to observe the Christian couples and their families. And he wrote me later, and he said, and I, I, I quote, I want to invite you to come to Myanmar to teach Christian family class that you taught us at ABS. That subject is very essential for Kakan State because many Christian parents leave their children and are doing business all the time. They don't know God's plan for the family. They neglect their children. So many youth become drug users, prostitutes, drunkards, and most become street boys and girls. Many churches in Kakan State are not teaching about Christian family life and parental responsibility. I believe that if you come and teach us, we will be really blessed. It wasn't our teaching as much as it was what they saw in the families and the children that caused him to change his whole attitude about uh, ABS and about American missionaries. The Tamar Center is down in the middle of Pattaya, Thailand. Pattaya, Thailand is the whoredom capital of the world. I don't know of any place where there's more concentration of prostitution than there is in that that city. Um, there's about 20,000 prostitutes that live in a city of 100,000 people. So if half of them are women, 50,000 women, almost half of the women in the city are in prostitution. The Tamar staff, uh, we had heard about the ministry and so there was a number of our young ladies that were going to get involved in, um, in trying to reach to the the prostitutes on the streets of, of Chiang Mai. And so in order for them to get a little bit of background and training with people who had more background, we sent two of the young ladies from, um, from I Go Down. Uh, we asked, actually, the Tamar staff if it would be okay if we would send two ladies down to join their team for training. That was in 2010. Well, the, the Tamar staff was really quite hesitant um, when they when they saw who we were, 
my son and his wife were the ones that had gone down to, to check that out, and, and they were not sure what it would be like to have two women so modestly dressed in their, their ministry. Um, and it, it's kind of hard for us maybe to comprehend the ostentatious difference between these two young ladies on the street with, uh, that is filled with prostitutes, pimps, and transvestites, and so forth. But they did agree. They said, yes, uh, we'll, we'll let your, your, um, your ladies come down. And the result was amazing. It was just incredible. As their three-month term of service came to an end, uh, the Igo ladies that were down there, the two young ladies, were told that they could bring as many of their type of ladies as often as they could. I just want to leave that with you as a congregation. There's so many people in places like that that need to see the kind of testimony that you leave just by living a godly, feminine, pure life. A second group ministered there for about the same amount of time, about a year later. And as they were ready to leave to come back to Chiang Mai, the TMR staff ladies accompanied them out to the bus that they were going to get on to, to travel back. And one of the other staff ladies, or actually the, the two main staff ladies who were from Holland, I believe, that had started the ministry, they went with them to the bus. One of the other staff ladies told my daughter, she said, they never go out to say goodbye uh, to a group of, of the volunteers they come in. They, they don't have the time. They just don't go out. But they went along this time. And one of those ladies told my daughter, said, you, you are our favorite team. Because of your radiance and a different way of dressing, it attracts a real interest in the bar girls. And you have a chance to talk with women that we don't have. The innocent purity of those young ladies were real-life representations of what those prostitutes long for in their inner being. That's the beauty of holiness. About four years ago in September, we sent a, a third team of, of young ladies down to a border town in Mae Sot, right on the border between Myanmar and, and Chiang Mai. These young ladies have been serving the displaced Burmese citizens that have fled from their homes because the Burmese government at that time was trying to exterminate them. So they'd fled from their homes and got across the river and they're in these, these refugee camps on the, on the uh, Thai side of the border. And so these different girls had gone down there and worked under a, a leader by the name of Alan Brown in a, um, a mission called Compassio, which I think is a French word for compassion. It was a ministry that takes Christ's love to the refugee camps in the area. And as Mr. Brown observed the character and devotion of these young ladies, he asked for the opportunity to come to Chiang Mai and to meet with us. And his impression of these students was so impacting that he wanted to know how, 
can I produce those kinds of young people? He's an American looking for that kind of young people to serve in his ministry. Pastor Gibb became our Thai advocate for legal and immigration work um, at IGO, and immediately after we visited the country, God brought him our way. We're so grateful for him. He was the, the leader of the largest association of Christian churches in northern Thailand for some time. He's no longer in that role, but he was um, for a significant amount of time. And he watched your students, your young people, those of you that have been here uh, or been over there, he watched um, your life closely for the last 10 years culminating uh, a couple of years back in his attendance at Faith Builders, but along with his, his daughter. Um, and the Christ-honoring lifestyles that he observed now compel him. And he says, I want to, to have a Thai church of like-minded theology and practice with the Anabaptists. He reflected on... Um, to one of our staff members, I now know that Anabaptists that I've gotten to know here in Thailand are for real. That's what he said when he came back from America. He said, they don't just act this way because they're on the mission field. They are different because of conviction and choice. That's the beauty of holiness. A number of years ago in December... E.T., that's what they called him because nobody knows his real name due to the fact that he's an underground church leader in China. He was there with our students, told our students, it is good to take Bibles into China, but more important is to teach and live it. He said, Mennonite brothers and sisters have something to give. Chinese need the examples that the Word of God is applicable and a new way to live, a holy life. We need teaching by life example, he said. He then reminded us that one-third of the world lives in China and India, so you better get your Mennonites over here. <laughs> Some have mistakenly concluded that the disciplines of a holy life are legalistic and detrimental to the cause of missions. I just want to say, well, it's my conviction we should not try to impose our applications upon every culture we seek to evangelize. We should teach and demonstrate the suitable application which in turn invites and compels the host culture to determine and utilize their own biblical application. And the beautiful character, message, and practices that flow out of a holy life lived in a vital communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, are the attention-getters for a broken, sin-cursed world to be drawn to the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through His holiness, they become aware of their sinfulness. That awareness points them to the Savior who longs to make their lives reflect His beauty as well. When we're caught up with the holy beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, His teaching will no longer... Look at, we will no longer look at the world to make our guidelines direct, or directly or inversely. I'd like to, to close 
this morning with kind of a novel story. Uh, this is a, a very homely attempt to put two stories together. Um, so um, <clears throat> you'll have to bear with me. A novel attempt to, um, to take the, the account of the Old Testament Rechabites, if you remember who they were, and the two significant leaders of the Reformation, Mr. Martin Luther and Mr. Menno Simons. So uh, if that's, that's kind of the background for this, this story. In days long ago, God raised up Martin to confront the false teaching and practices of his people. As Martin was furiously riding his chariot down the road one day, he happened upon another young man named Menno. When Martin inquired of Menno as to whether he was of the same mind about the people's sin, Menno quickly agreed that he was. Stepping into the chariot, the two young men sped off to hold conferences and seminars to confront the heresy of the people. Due to his initiative and diligence, Martin was promised by the Lord that the next four church leaders would be his descendants. Unfortunately, Martin's personal compromises were imitated and strengthened by his progeny. As Menno observed the effect of pomp and power upon his friend, he determined in his heart to take a different path. Menno returned home to implant the beauty of holiness in his sons. He gave them five extra-biblical guidelines as preservatives against the immoral materialistic mindset that he observed in the sons of Martin. His commands were clear. Do not cut off your beards. Sing an a cappella in your churches. Wear cape dresses and plain suits. Sit segregated in your assemblies. Attend church regularly. Menno promised his offspring, that they, if they would remain true to these commands, their holy lifestyle would have a lasting impact in the land. 450 years later, a lone gunner came to Menno's descendants and killed five of his daughters. When the enraged community turned to hear the response of the sons of Menno, they responded with one voice, We forgive. While there are glaring inconsistencies among some of these descendants, that act of holiness went out to confront the fallen cultures of the world with its exquisite beauty. We recognize that the five issues I have ascribed to Menno were not practices that he necessarily advocated to his followers, but they are issues which our forefathers have embraced as appropriate expressions of holy living. We dare not canonize extra-biblical practices, but neither should we be careless in abandoning what reflected legitimate attempts in the past to live holy lives in a fallen culture. While we wrestle with discerning how to express holiness in light of contemporary issues, let us never forget that nonconformity glows the brightest where the world is the darkest. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. That is the beauty of holiness. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we 
know that we have so much more yet to learn about your holiness. We just are scratching a little bit of the surface in these discussions this past few days. And Lord, you want to take us so much deeper. It's those inner transformations, that inner cleansing, that sanctification that happens in our soul as the flesh is removed and, and uh, it's, it's destroyed. The ashes of the flesh become the foundation for the beauty that you want to make out of those ashes. So Lord, I just pray that you would work in each of our hearts in an ongoing sense Bring us together week after week to, to discuss what it means to be a holy nation set apart unto you so that the testimony that goes out from Berea would be one that in, in encourages and invites discussion and questions by those who do not know you. And they would see the beauty of your holiness through us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.